uh, rooted in a, new, in a very rural context. Um, what they saw as being very, very difficult was that cities were much denser, so there was a lot of competing demands for the same land. Someone wants to put a road where you want to put a house where someone else wants to put their water pipes. Um, there's greater oversight of what you're doing. There's a lot of institutions who can see and respond to what you're doing um, and that you need to engage with. Um, there's a much more complex economy, much more complex social structures. And these are all things that people find very, very difficult to respond to. Um, we would question whether urban and rural contexts are really that different. Um, we'd also question, you know, we'd, we'd question whether a lot of the problems didn't already exist in the rural areas and whether actually the, rural, the urban uh, context just brought them into stark relief. And we'd also suggest that some of the solutions that are appropriate to urban areas would also work in rural areas too. Um, so, yeah, there's been quite a lot of calls for urban planning tools from humanitarian agencies. After every disaster, every large-scale disaster, certainly, there's a flurry of reports and evaluations reflecting on what's happened, on what's gone wrong, what's gone right, how it could be better. And one thing that's come out fairly consistently is um, coordination is always cited as a problem. Um, but also something that's come up is um, a feeling that Urban planning possibly has some tools that might help resolve some of the problems that people are experiencing. One example of that was post-tsunami in Aceh, and people suggesting that if um, if settlements had been planned in a better way, that they would have been able to channel the wind and the water in different ways, and it would have prevented great loss of life and great damage to people's livelihoods. Um, at this, so. There's quite a lot of people calling for these tools, but at the same time, we suspect that they don't completely understand what they are or quite how they work or quite how they might fit with um, the humanitarian way of working. Um, what we would suggest that they're useful for is firstly to coordinate, um, secondly to convene a, a discussion, and thirdly to communicate what the results of that are. So to coordinate a lot of uh, small-scale interventions, you might draw a larger plan, shows where everyone's working, that makes sure that people aren't building on top of each other, and can just resolve a lot of uh, potential conflicts in interventions. We think that it's potentially a tool for convening a discussion that you can bring all stakeholders together around the plan, and it's a tool that can bring together a lot of different issues and inputs and help to resolve them. We also think that it can help to communicate whatever that plan is finally by, by drawing a plan, essentially. Um, drawing a map showing where everyone's going to work, what they're going to do. Um, and then that could be a very, very effective tool. Much more effective than a lot of the written reports that are typically produced. Um, so there is a precedent for using urban design and urban planning in a similar context in the work of development practitioners. And that's in slow upgrading. And what, what that is, is typically to work together with the community to replan their neighborhood to make it better and more livable, to introduce basic services. So you might, working together with the community, you might demolish some houses, rebuild them, rearrange them to allow water in, to allow better sanitation, to allow emergency vehicle access, get electricity in, and generally make the place more livable. So there is a precedent for this sort of work from a a discipline that's acceptable to humanitarians, let's say. Um, 
So we now just like to show you the first film, which is about what urban design is. Um, it was something that when I went around Haiti and interviewed all of these humanitarian practitioners, at the end of the interviews, I asked everybody if they would define it for me. And this is a compilation of some of those responses. Um, People tended to think that it was something that would be very useful for them, but as you'll see in the film, they framed their understanding of urbanism very, very differently. Dans ses, euh, dans ses qualités infrastructurelles euh, au niveau de ses services et sociaux. 
Et il y a un cet aspect qui fait surtout le, la répartition de l'espace interne. Là, on peut avoir de l'eau de maison, là, il y a de l'espace public, etc. Mais quand il s'agit d'amélioration communautaire d'une ville de quartier, il faut s'asseoir avec la communauté parce que les gens, ils vivent déjà, ils ont leur provision, ils ont leur vécu et ils ont leur vision dans, pour la communauté. Really, the, the vision um, for a city and vision for a country needs to consider that that's a vision for a society. Quelle est notre contribution, nous, comme urbanistes, dans un contexte euh, post-désastre, dans un contexte de, de carence institutionnelle euh, C'est aussi quelle est notre contribution. Ce n'est pas simplement euh, fonctionner comme une agence d'urbanisme par des plans, mais c'est aussi euh, initier euh, un, un mode de de coopération avec les institutions. And if we just repeat what is here, so if we just build back what was here before, then you're only going to have the same problems in the future. So, you know, block by block replanning almost needs to occur in line with a wider strategy. So at two levels, sort of the micro and the macro, make sure that they fit together. So I think that's where the role of the urban planner is, bringing all these stakeholders together community, government, technical aspects, architects, whoever is involved, like school directors, health centers, everybody that's involved in this community, bringing them together and making a nice and livable neighborhood. The planification urban reflects principalement une volonté d'agir sur le futur, d'organiser, de, de définir un, un futur euh, au niveau d'un quartier, de prévoir des projets de manière à créer un futur qui n'existe pas encore. Nous allons pouvoir contribuer à, bon, à, à l'imaginaire des gens et, et, et leur permettre vraiment de rêver sur un, un futur meilleur. Diagram showing that. 
Um, what it also probably gives a sense of is the impenetrability of the jargon and the organizational, um, the way that, it, that this is organized for an outsider. It's a lot of acronyms. It's things that, as architects or urbanists, you're possibly familiar with, but they're talked about in a very, very different way. Um, what is notable here, um, you have like the shelter cluster coordinating up here. This person then has their strategic advisory group. And then down here, you have the technical working groups. So these technical working groups are things like um, CAD support, one of them will be GIS and mapping. Another one of them is urban planning. And it's, it's what we think that's completely up, upside down. The, the urban planning ought to be like somewhere up at the top, sort of coordinating, sorting out the strategic decisions, and then sort of feeding that back to the shelter guys who can do their thing within it. Um, so, there's more reasons. Um, one is to do with equity. Humanitarian agencies tend to focus on the individual and individual families. Um, and they do that as a way of promoting equity. They specifically go looking um, to support vulnerable individuals. That's who they have to give priority to. But that doesn't really work when you want to go to a street and put in a new drainage system. Suddenly you're dealing with everybody. Perhaps you're dealing with some quite rich individuals on that street and what you're doing is also benefiting them. And it's very, very difficult to reconcile that with principles of putting the most vulnerable first in this triage system that the humanitarians operate on. Um, at the same time, you know, urbanists, they want to be working at the community level. So there's a conflict there as well. Um, this one, it's about the, the humanitarian principles, the principles which guide humanitarian action. And they are humanity, impartiality, neutrality, and independence. So that means that humanitarians, their main goal is to preserve human life and relieve suffering. Right. Um, they also intend to be neutral, so they don't get involved in political processes. Uh, they don't take sides in a conflict, for example. Uh, they also aim to be impartial, and so they serve those with, they prioritize those who are in the greatest need. And finally, independence. And what you were not sure the what's coordinating the humanitarian affairs. Um, they define independence. Humanitarian action must be autonomous from the political, economic, military, or other objectives that any actor may hold with regard to areas where humanitarian action is being implemented. That land use planning is inherently political. Um, it's incredibly political. It sets the stage for everything that you're going to do with, with your economy, deals with the, the quality, with health, with who gets access to what services, what land. It's incredibly political, and that's almost impossible to reconcile with the humanitarian principles. Um, the last problem is suspicions and stereotypes about master planning. Um, there's been a long history of large, grand, top-down developmental um, interventions, particularly in the 1970s with mega dams, with, uh, with the Green Revolution. They perhaps solved one problem and they caused a whole lot of others. They also were incredibly unfair and badly implemented with regards to poor communities. Um, master planning is also quite badly caricatured as being sort of Soviet-era 
50 year plan kind of rigid and told them nothing's going to change for the next 50 years, which is not true and doesn't work. Um, it's also a reaction to the idea of designers as being arrogant, as being a top down in position, and as designers as being only about aesthetics rather than a great way of bringing together a lot of people and solving a lot of problems. Um, so it's a reaction to that, um, and the humanitarian response and the acceptable place of planning for humanitarians is um, it's the community action planning and it's the slow upgrading that I talked about just before, where you work through a process of community participation, it's very bottom up, but you're also working at a, at a neighborhood scale, and in fact you're probably limited to a neighborhood scale, which, and that causes its own problems. Um, but there is that precedent of slow upgrading that we can point to when we're talking about humanitarian intervention and say that some of these tools really could be useful and really could be the most appropriate ways to solve some of the problems that you're finding. So, uh, the, one of the key outputs from this research were the 10 films that we made. And one of the, initially, the, the purpose of that was to bring them to our, the, the workshop that we come, the, the, the research would culminate in, and allow people who hadn't um, experienced this city or this context to get some idea of the texture and the fabric of that city and be able to have you know, the experienced evidence who had no humanitarian experience could maybe be brought to the, brought to the problem. So they were a tool to do that. Um, but also a way of showing, uh, digging down a little bit into how the international community is thinking about these problems and explaining them and discussing them. So I want to emphasize again that um, when you watch these films, don't think of them as films about Haiti. Um, they're films about the international community in urban settings. They're not films about the anthropology of Haiti, they're films about the anthropology of international bureaucracy. Okay? So have that in your minds. Um, they might still make you feel a little bit squirmy, but we'll see. Um, do share if they do. So the, the three films we're going to show you are uh, one called White Humanitarian State Draw Plans, uh, a film about equity and a film about the government. It will follow on uh, nicely from uh, the challenges that Alison has set out. So, um, this first, um, would you mind running the films off the desktop? Uh, so, yeah, so the first film, Why Don't You Matter and Straw Plans, you will see that there are two responses coming through there. One is about capacity, so there's, there's a mention of the skills you need to draw the plans, the software licenses you might need, the, the, the training you might need to present things in that way, and, and a literacy question around um, presenting things as, as, a, as a drawing. And the other is uh, more profound, and it's about the conception, much more about the conception of um, space and the city, and the different preferences for the way information is presented, uh, different choices about what should be shown, um, so look out for that, and different ways of framing the discussion about the city and what um, poverty is in terms of its multiple dimensions in the city, and what urbanism might bring as, a, as, as this synthetic spatial discipline. So look out for those, those things, and, uh, what, the way we'd like to do this is that um, once we've shown the film, we'd like to just get immediate reactions. We won't have a big discussion, but feel free to sort of put your hand up and make some comments about anything you feel or see. And we'll do that for each, each film, and we'll try and touch on that as we bring together the questions at the end.
and we wanted to get a better global picture of what everybody's living conditions were. Um, so we asked each family a series of, of questions. The idea was to try and highlight what were the what was the, the level of, of of living in the area without a, a map of the area. It was very hard to then start understanding that in in a plan form. The output was um, a report with uh, statistical information that um, represented what we had discovered. So the percentage of people living who said they were living in a red house, or the percentage of families that said they were living in a, a green, safe house, um, the percentage of people that said that they did have access to a toilet that they didn't. There's multiple families living in in each building. So if we interview two families and they both say they're living in a red house, and then we record that there's two red houses in its own, it's based on how many families there are, not on how many buildings there <laughs> are. I think there was lots of um, ideas that came from the relief phase, people working in camps, um, people knew the camps really well from working them every day and walking around them. There wasn't, there wasn't necessarily a need to map each plot or each house because the, the type of support is mass distribution. It's very difficult to do a mass distribution in a, in a, in a tight urban area and um, to do individual um, support you really need to know where people are and have, have a map. But all we had access to was Google Maps. Um, the map that I was using in sort of October um, 2010, November 2010, was only up to date from August. So very difficult to actually locate yourself where you were, even on Google Maps, because things changed so much. The scale is so small. Luckily, we had a contact who was studying GIS as a PhD and had access to better quality maps, higher resolution, um, satellite imagery um, from, from the private sector um, that enabled us to start doing the remote, remote mapping and start drawing out the plots of, um, of the houses um, in the area. Um, a good method to use is to just give a bunch of spray paint to the community, have them spray paint it out on really on the on the side, how it needs to be, like where is the pot gonna be? Is their house gonna move in it a meter? You make the drawing on site. We have a lot of people um, who are recording these things in different formats, be it GIS, be it open source platforms, be it AutoCAD, and so there was a move to try and um, migrate towards open source software. Um, but again, there's still uh, there's still a technology barrier that you create at some point. I still send out KMT files and people look at these for 10 ads because they don't know what it is. And so there's also a technology literacy issue and play. You know, if, if representative from agency A and representative from agency B were both in the same room, they would at least need to be able to coordinate with themselves, which in the very early days um, and in a very immediate sense was probably more critical. Um, however, it was obvious you know, disadvantages, more longer term disadvantages, but one, if there's a turnover in staff, so you've got to start from scratch, particularly when a lot of it isn't necessarily codified or, you know, memorialized in some kind of, you know, documentation, a lot of things get lost.
So any immediate reactions to that? Just to say red, yellow, and green was a way of classifying houses according to their um, safety level. Um, so red is bad, and it's green is good. Okay. Oh, we'll um, the, the next one about equity uh, comes back to this question of um, targeting the vulnerable. Uh, uh, the idea being that um, a vulnerable household is a household that contains vulnerable individuals, so elderly people or young people or pregnant um, women and so on. Uh, that's, that would be traditionally how you would classify vulnerability. Um, bearing in mind that the most needy are sometimes difficult to identify and find in a heterogeneous um, city, especially in the aftermath of a disaster. And also that the needy uh, might not want to be found. There are good reasons why you wouldn't want to be registered uh, by, by your company or by the state. Um, that was not just here in many places. So listen to how um, listen to how these problems are described. opportunity to remake the relationship between communities and government 
Um, that's not just a physical plan that a government may enforce, but it's about creating a different basis for the relationship between informal communities and the state. So, any immediate reactions to that, or should I just go straight on? Go straight on. Okay, so finally, um, we've got people talking now about foreign um, governance. Um, some things to think about before we watch that film. I don't know, I don't know for you guys what you understand in your professional life to mean governance and government, but we want you to think about those things slightly differently. And governance, we think of something that any system or do and it's about um, there's a much more focus on managing and processes and getting things right. Whereas government is about sovereignty and legitimacy and power, and there are some different things going on there. Um, what happens after a disaster is that if you're, the international community has to be invited, so you only go if that post government um, says yes, and that's quite important to know as you watch people um, describe the functions of, of the state. So listen out first, listen out for the, where the state is placed here. Without us. 
nothing without the local governance level. C'est pour ça que la gouvernance du projet doit s'articuler sur ces leçons et doit prendre, doit prendre en compte tous ces acteurs, quelle que soit leur capacité actuelle, parce qu'on est dans la projection. Darfur was a, an area where not many NGOs wanted to work. That made that the, many, the municipality was not that overwhelmed by the amount of attention. Later, it was quite okay to coordinate with them. Nonetheless, they don't have the means and the capacity to really support. Um, and you know, the critical, the critical question was raised at the conference of the most an NGO that actually said, "Well, well, you know, how many technicians do you actually have within your within in this case to have? How many technicians do you actually have?" And then the scale difference between you know, the number of technicians they have, the number of technicians the NGOs have, you know, just, the capacity of, in this case, Dinova is, is incredibly low. We don't really need architects and planners uh, delivering or designing better tea shelter. We need them looking at what they know better, which is the long-term building process, and being able to inform that um, from an earlier stage, embedded in local institutions whether that's local government or local technical ministries, local universities, or work alongside their counterparts, which are the local professionals in the country. Oui, dans les, dans, dans les activités qu'on a, qu a fait de planification, et, il fallait rester sur une approche de l'urbanisme qui soit assez simple et qui, qui se base sur les principes, principes généraux d'aménagement, qui vont être pourquoi il faut des corridors suffisamment larges en cas d'évacuation, euh, par exemple, que les gens puissent circuler, améliorer l'accessibilité, la circulation, plus que de rester sur un dimensionnement de la mais il y aura également une passerelle piéteuse qui va être réalisée un peu plus en amont dans la rallye et qui va permettre de connecter Bayajo au quartier d'en face qui est le quartier de Campèche. Donc cette passerelle va permettre bien sûr donc, de faciliter les déplacements des gens. Symboliquement, ça va être aussi donc, un, un signe très fort de connexion entre les quartiers. Et en même temps, donc, cette euh, passerelle va avoir un troisième rôle qui est celui de... de d'avertir les gens qui habitent dans le fond de la ravine qui se trouvent dans une zone dangereuse. Quel est le niveau d'eau euh, maximal sur une période de 100 ans Et ce niveau-là va être utilisé pour fixer la hauteur de la passerelle qui deviendra donc un symbole euh, également du danger euh, représenté par la ravine en dessous euh, des mains. Et donc on estime que quelqu'un qui habitera dans une maison en dessous de la passerelle euh, se sentira en danger And there are a lot of assumptions that, that the only way you can achieve building control is to have strong state enforcing construction standards with building permits, etc. Realistically, the state is, is uh, it doesn't play that role even in many developed countries. It relies on a, on a self-compliance of a construction sector. Um, rather than a very, very strong architecture of the state to, to police standards. And we need to interpret what that might mean in a country like Haiti. So, um, I, what you would have heard there is that this, the state being described as a, a policy maker, an approver of permissions, a processor of paperwork, um, sometimes a stakeholder in somebody else's process, um, a supporter of the project or a coordination or an enforcer sometimes. Um, just to uh, go back to some of the other, the, the two earlier films, you would have heard uh, people talking about uh, 
resolving the problem of targeting vulnerable individuals by thinking of, of in a utilitarian way about targeting limited forces to the greatest number of people. Um, you would have heard people talking about the planning process um, you know, as a process, not a plan. That's a way of bringing those informal communities to a table and giving them some kind of voice. So it's not uh, targeting a vulnerable person with a thing, but bringing them into a process. And of the importance of remaking um, the relationship between the vulnerable and the state. So rather than saying, well, we'll you know, there's these vulnerable people, we'll keep targeting them, actually. Um, let's go to the root of uh, what makes them vulnerable. And a large part of that is, their, uh, is often their relationship to the state in terms of access to, to services. And, in, and um, again, in that first film, you would have seen lots of different uh, discussions about translation and reading the city and literacy and capturing data that's in tables or capturing data that's, that's about space and um, a mention of how, how coordination works. So there's a lot of material in there. And um, hopefully, things that really were addressed to you jumped out at you. So the comment about what uh, the best use of an architect's time is not designing t-shirts, which is transitional to so those timber garden that you see everywhere. Um, the, the, the role of urbanists and architects thinking about these long-term building processes, which is what they actually know. You know lots of um, interesting material. That final film about so people were being asked questions about the role of government. They weren't always answering questions about the government. Um, people, were, when asked about their own legitimacy, came in other films and in other interviews came up with really bizarre responses about their legitimacy and, and their, the fact that their organisation had some kind of comparative advantage in taking risk and that, that bestowed upon them some legitimacy to, to intervene, etc. Um, but I think what you'll see that's common to lots of those films is different people explaining their, their sort of level of their intervention and how laissez-faire it is or how um, intervening it is in, in quite different ways. Um, and possibly, or one thing that I personally find worrying is, is not necessarily questioning their own power um, or assuming that because they're there targeting the vulnerable that, that their power is okay um, to use. So um, there's, there's, a, there's a lot in there. There are other films and uh, they're available on our website. Uh, what, what always happens, especially when we're presenting in the humanitarian forum and also at the, end, at the conclusion of a research project is, you know, what are the solutions? How do we get the uh, planning practices um, into um, humanitarian response? And what, what we found, uh, and um, some, there are some solutions being suggested in there. What we found in our conversations, and I've had these conversations with lots of people in the room, are that um, that solution conversation in the humanitarian sector is falling into two camps. The first is about guidelines and toolkits, which really are, are to um, enable generalists to work in quite specific urban um, settings. So that's one idea for why you might want a tool. Um, and the other is um, extending or expanding the suite of humanitarian products or solutions or options that can be well bound in a city. So a move from giving out material stuff, you know, material distribution of plastic sheeting to cash, because of course, you know, in urban areas there are markets and cash might be more useful than a very inflexible piece of stuff. Um, or alternatively, um, a solution from the humanitarian point of view might be an integrated neighborhood approach, which is holistic um, uh, over the area of a city manageable by an NGO. So that's another kind of solution that's out there being um, 
proposed. Um, what we're not we're resisting those two schools of solutions, not because we're not pragmatic. I mean, you can tell well engineers and objects are pragmatic about action and want to take action of it. Um, but we're resisting them because we think there's there are questions or a conversation at least that needs to happen before you get to that solution bit. And that's much, much more about paradigm shift. And if you're great at pragmatism and humanitarian agencies are amazing at acting and acting fast, sometimes you can overlook the philosophy and the assumptions that underpin what you do. So, you know, before we let, start talking about solutions for individual agencies, why aren't we talking about flipping that organogram upside down that we showed you about the shelter cluster? Why aren't we thinking about spatial strategies and strategizing? So we're talking about vulnerable places, we're looking at the whole city, thinking about vulnerable places, not um, I'm here in this bit and I'm, I'm finding vulnerable people, you know. Um, why, aren't, why aren't we thinking about um, why, why aren't we rejecting the idea of bringing experts in to design and deliver and um, approve or sign off technical things? Why aren't we thinking about um, skilled, spatial people having a conversation earlier about communicating, convening, um, reconciling conflicts and uh, coordinating? And lastly, why aren't we moving away from thinking of context and scale as context there was a disaster in the city, scale it was this big, to context how do we read this city, how do we understand who the actors are, who are the urban humanitarians who are already there, who own this place, and um, what are the trends in this place, what was happening, what's the history of the city, what was happening here, who are the winners and losers before and who are going to be the winners and losers now, and where we place our money, if we put it in a piece or a product or a thing versus um, into an institution that already exists or into people, what difference and what, the, what difference does that make? What are the consequences of that and how do they, how do they play out? So um, we think there are things to be done and, and we think that conversation should come first, but actually um, we're worried it's not. So that's our spiel on solutions. <laughs> So from the perspective of an engineer and an architect having a discussion and um, making films, um, the things that, uh, you know, People who can think about space and represent it, it's not in the professional education of most people. It is in yours. You know, that's, um, that's really special. And we, we found that policy makers are not, they don't think about space. They don't, they don't think in space. They think in tables, they think in text. And it's a really different way of, of trying to communicate a problem. Really different. So there's something here that is, um, that is special about um, the minds of objects before they were trained and the experience of um, materiality after they were trained. There are other professions with, you know, medicine, you touch as you theorize. There are other things, but um, it's not everywhere. It's not so much in engineering anymore. Um, there's a really fundamental difference between engineering design and architectural design, which I hadn't realized in my naivety, which is in engineering design, you can't make a mistake. In architectural design, you commit to the possibility of making a mistake. You don't want to, but it's there. It's like that it's the sort of artful daring of architecture that is still there. Um, and even if you don't do it in your professional life, it happens in your education. And I haven't realized what a difference that meant to the person you might be, but also to the way you think about a problem. And by the way, politics is 
similar to architecture in that way. Um, also, and this this came for me. This this observation about design came from me for me from the process of making the films. When you commit to making a film, you don't know. I didn't know what you what I would get. And when I first watched them, I was very 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 uncomfortable for a whole number of reasons. Perhaps you have the same discomfort. But making films is risky. Making films is powerful, and um, it can tell a much bigger story than I even ever anticipated. So that was a very interesting um, experience. Most importantly, um, the fundamental discomfort for me watching those films is, is who is speaking. And what it told me was that actually it's hard to win the trust and build the relationships necessary to have what, what I had wanted initially in the films is the Haitian professional classes speaking back to the international community, not the most vulnerable beneficiary who can't and has never looked at their city um, from space, but the professional classes who can hold these people to account. To build a relationship with them so they will speak to you in a film is not possible in a short time. So imagine the banality of the humanitarian evaluations that say, you must engage more with local people. Well, that is hard for a lot of reasons about your power. Um, let's examine that in a slightly more sophisticated way. So, and um, that's what we learned. And uh, that's my journey in <laughs> <laughs> Just one, a couple of last things then. Um, just to tell you where we're going to go next, we've just got a small grant from University College London called, just from a fund called Plan Challenges, which is about enabling multidisciplinary working. Uh, when we did the workshop at the end of, uh, the end of November last year, which was about bringing together urbanists and humanitarians and getting them to try and work together on a neighborhood planning exercise. We found that actually there were, what we thought was that they would review what we had done so far and we'd be able to identify some problems together and we'd also be able to identify some ways forward. And it didn't quite work out that way because a lot of, we found that these problems were actually just very, very fundamental. We also found that we don't completely understand what's going on in there. And so this funding that we've just got is to work with a social anthropologist and to analyse the recordings of, of those groups trying to work together, um, failing to a large extent. And to just try and sort of map what's going on so we can try and understand that a bit better and hopefully um, from there begin to affect a bit of change. And the other thing is that we're starting to work on developing a book and we're currently applying for funding for that. We're hoping to start working on it later this year in the autumn and to fund that partly via Kickstarter. Um, and then, well, we have a very long list of people to thank, and I won't go through all of these except to say thank you to the reader once again. Um, we should mention our supervisor, who is Camilo Buono from the Development Planning Unit at University College London, and send up at Oxford Groups for also brilliantly, brilliantly supportive us. Um, and the last thing, um, where we'll end is say to stay in touch with us if you're interested in this topic. Um, these are our email addresses and these are our Twitter handles. And well, we also have an email list, so if you'd like to be on that, then give us your email at the end of the session. And um, thank you for coming here tonight. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll do a really short summary while everybody's gathering their breath. Because, uh, um, 
so much came out of this. So it's, um, I feel I'm going to be digesting it for about the next week and, and possibly for years on. Because the, the, the true test, I think, of, of any education process is what it really does is it sets up a series of echoes. And I think when those echoes come back at you, some of them have a short reverberation time, come around and hit you in the back of your head quite quickly. And others, uh, I think, take years sometimes to settle and for you to make sense of what's an extraordinarily complex situation. The, the prevailing sense I had from this is that if we think defining the design parameters for a single building project are complex, how very much more complex is it to engage with the informal city, particularly when it's, it's, it's rent by catastrophe? Um, the, the comments about Maps. I mean, just very innocent pieces of data that we take for granted, I think, as design professionals um, in the majority of our professional lives. Um, absence of, of such things, um, an understanding actually that the nature of informality means that the city is in a continuous state of morphological transformation, and this doesn't begin or end at any particular point in time. Um, a fantastic trio of thoughts, I thought, coordinating, convening and communicating. It was a brilliant, uh, brilliant trio of um, qualities that you actually need in initiating any conversation as a, as a designer. And I think other, other thoughts just on this subject of the complexity of the tasks which you describe is that the data from one, which one is working in situations as those such as those you described, is isn't the question of it being lower than the precepts that we take for granted in, in Western cities. It's more that they're so much more opaque. And uh, I, I think the comments you made about the, the impossibility of getting design professionals, local, regional, national, to respond on film, in, in, in a sense, begins to highlight how extraordinarily complex getting a dialogue um, going is. But there were some, some other fantastic comments that came out of the film. Um, connecting people to resources, applying intellect to complex problems, helping people to imagine. It, again, really extraordinary, um, extraordinarily visionary uh, comments. Um, and that levels of intervention and not questioning the power that people have when addressing vulnerability, this is a really key, uh, key issue. Um, and I guess if I've got a single question that, that emerges from this, it's, it's a question of, uh, dare I say it, everybody on film was not local to the context in which they were operating. So there's a question, I guess, just to get this rolling, um, how does one ensure if really what you're trying to do is establish a pedagogy for humanitarian response, how do you ensure that the responses that come um, have, I don't even like to use the word authenticity, but I'll use it anyway, how do we ensure that they have a cultural authenticity and fit with the context in which they're being applied? I'll sit down at this point. Yeah. So, uh, it's interesting that you said authenticity because um, we've shown you something in lots of different places and one of the violent responses was this is 
this is a partial view. We have, um, there's lots of things that Haitians are doing for themselves. Um, this is not, this is inauthentic. Well, that's not actually, this is partial. So is asking a beneficiary to say, um, to, you know, to give their satisfaction rating on their shelter in lots of different ways. And so is the assumption that someone will tell you the truth um, <laughs> when you walk in. I mean, how that, yeah, so. Um, yeah, I mean, there, were, there, were, there was one um, Haitian member of humanitarian staff in there who was about well, Leon, who was working for a lot of time. There's also, there's a number of other Haitian members of staff who are in other films. But yeah, absolutely, overwhelmingly, uh, white, middle class, Western, politically, um, when I went around looking at the neighborhood intervention, neighborhood reconstruction project, we would typically go around with the community team. And that was um, that was the best way to go around uh, those neighborhoods. Um, they were always, that was always like a Haitian member of staff actually. They, was, they, they, they just seemed like absolutely brilliant people. We couldn't walk five meters in any of these neighborhoods without them. They stopped to have to have a conversation about somebody's child who had just had their first birthday and this and that. Um, so very, very well integrated in the local community, very, very strong relationships. Um, in terms of trying to get hold of um, local urban planners, also local members of the government, um, there, were, there were two or three local urban planning groups. I managed to get hold of one of them on the last day and they were out of the office. I chased around Rosemary Giyad, who's the National Minister for Planning, for about three weeks as well. Um, and one of the difficulties is that um, the people who you see in the films here, we actually have pre-existing relationships with a lot of them, or with colleagues of theirs. And so we were able to approach them with this sort of strange idea, it's quite a risky idea as well, you know, would you talk about your projects on camera and then allow us to show these films publicly? It's quite a big ask. Um, but we were able to do that because there were pre-existing relationships. And it was only once I was in Haiti that I'd met these people once or twice and they'd sort of seen that I was okay, that they were then prepared to recommend me to like further colleagues. And there was a chain of people that you had to go to in order to get to the, to the Haitian counterparts and the Haitian government officials who, had, who we really wanted to talk to in the beginning. Um, yeah. So, I mean, and that, in, that is in microcosm what had been happening for mm. everyone trying to form relationships. Okay, so that, that's the, that's what we learn. <laughs> um, I'm going to say thank you very much for this. I'm, I come from the humanitarian world, so I have to apologize that I don't really know so much about their design tools, although I know a little bit about land economy, so I can understand what you're doing, and I think that the humanitarian world is definitely in agreement on a lot of things that you're saying, as in, to use the spatial elements, to use the GISs, um, to use the community, to become less westernized and more local, and all these things have started happening, and we're learning from the things that have happened in Haiti. So for example, I can name you an answer back to, uh, to all those arguments from our project in Haiti, um, that we involved the communities, and we used GIS, and we used the special thinking, and we gave it to the local authority to use it. But you're right that this is a new idea, 
and it would be very nice for it to be used in the future. I think one thing from our perspective that would really be very important for you to clarify in your research is to, to be explicit about the humanitarian uh, work versus the development work. Because the humanitarian work by its nature is coming to relieve people from a disaster at a very, very short period of time. And then comes the recovery, which is what you're talking about. Then we, the humanitarian world exits and the development world comes in to come and help the local people understand how they want to rebuild their villages and their towns and how their politicians will start developing their plans and their crisis management. This is not humanitarian world, although, of course, we've got the exception of Haiti that everybody jumped in to help. So I would suggest, I mean, I'm not very experienced, but I would suggest that you probably explicitly define that difference between humanitarian world and the essence of speed and the development world. Um, and I think that uh, all this information that you're suggesting is fantastic. And if you could do it and volunteer it to the humanitarian world, it would be very much appreciated. Because the humanitarian world doesn't have the resources to go to 190 countries and prepare for every possible earthquake, flood, war. You know, there's so much more to it. And we just don't have the resources. So if you can find a solution to that and help us prepare it, brilliant. And not only spatially in terms of construction, but spatially economically as well. We do that in our markets. We try to revive markets spatially. Um, anything that you can do to help us would be very much appreciated, I think. So um, I, I, if you can find ways that we can work together, I think we would be wonderful. I saw some examples of very, very beautiful sets of I should say. Um, it's, it's not, um, this, this was, a, I mean, partly we changed the focus of the presentation for an architectural audience because we're not familiar with humanitarian But also, it, it's not a criticism of individual actors no, or humanitarian But I think, what I, so what, when I hear the response about we need to distinguish between humanitarianism and developmentalism, my, I, for me, because we could have another film on temporary and permanent shelter, but for me that's such a constructed problem that, I, that we didn't engage with it, because the, the problematic as it's put to us is there's emergency, there's um, recovery, and there's reconstruction. Those things are not happening in that way for, for the urban humanitarians or the urban affected. And humanitarians don't have a mandate to go to every country necessarily and prepare everyone. That government does. Um, and they probably have done some stuff. So when we get there as humanitarians, as, as care, what would be good is not is to know what that might be. It, and know where it's weak, and know who's in charge, and know their names, and know what to do. And in, certainly, initially in Haiti, UN Opsha, they didn't know who anyone was, or who was powerful in any ministry, or, you know, it was always, we're working with government. What's their name? What's their job? What's the ministry? What's the mandate of the ministry in the constitution? Well, you know, nothing like that was, was um, you know, those, so there, those lines are, are, are based on our funding streams, not on the reality of life 
if your house is falling down and not on the reality of the governance, except in the ways that donors channel their funding. So I think it's, I agree, I think the conversation needs to happen. But the, the sort of, as this project has gone on, you know, we, the client really isn't helping the change work better. The, the client is, um, there are all these people who already, um, what, what shape this intervention is take. So, you know, diff, I did present these at Diffid and they were like, so what are the, you know, what are the challenges, what are the challenges? And, and the question to them is, what do you want your implementing partners to look like? Do you want massive means testing organisations to, you know, operate in a city, a complex city? Or do you want small, smart organisations that understand how to identify who's important, what they're doing, um, and know quickly where, where they need support? So, I mean, there's different, I just think there's, there's different ways of thinking about it um, in terms of that line. And it is definitely, like it's definitely, the life-saving activity is definitely there, but lots of organisations stretch that themselves and stay on and have to transition as an organisation. Forget the transition of the affected population. Those organisations go through a trauma transition um, as well. And that's, we don't talk about the, we, don't, we should turn the words we use to talk about the affected population and the, to the organisations and not bureaucracies. So when we talk about transitional shelter, we should talk about transition in our organisations. And when we talk about learning, we should also talk about what on earth is our incentive to learn. Is it just because we're good people do, trying to do a good thing in a humanitarian organisation? Because if all the things that are set in your framework of your terms of reference in your job contract, you know, how do you, you can't, it's hard to change. So I think it's I think there's I think there's room like I come from the humanitarian side, so I'm also quite defensive about the humanitarian position because I think it's valid and I think it's really hard to carve out a space where you're not on the back of the military or um, being you know funded by your government because it's a particular state of terror that they want to be they want to be there they want you on the ground you know it's hard to fight for that humanitarian space we have to fight for it but um, that doesn't mean that we can not have a conversation and hold ourselves accountable to, to say like other public policy professionals or other professional groups as well. In terms of what we're doing. Take another question now. Oh, sorry. Um, on the development part of it, I would argue that actually shelter is largely developmental and it's a developmental activity that takes place in an emergency context. Typically, you can make an argument for that. Um, so yeah, the. There's problems then with sort of funding streams and uh, yeah, how that works within the typical process of relief and could be Another thing, um, where I've seen good projects, um, sort of integrated neighbourhood interventions, humanitarian agencies are, are quite well set up to be able to deal with that scale of project. The difficulty comes when you then want to jump up yet another scale and sort of coordinate that on the city level and to sort of rebuild the centre of the water points, um, prioritise areas for investment and recovering the economy and so That's potentially where there's more confidence that needs to be changed. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> I think it um, is really true um, that you said that echoes will be felt in many different places. Um, I was wondering if one of those echoes should be felt on architectural education, and I guess that's more a question to Alison, but also to David, and thanks to Kate. I'll let you take the first one. <laughs> um, 
addressing these sorts of issues within architecture? In, in, if architects have specific skills that are quite unique to its, um, to its profession, should it also be getting some other skills that might um, bring it better to work within other contexts? Um, I mean, that could be even within UK communities to think about how UK cities work, how UK communities live, how locals should be engaged with, how they can be empowered. Um, some of this more city level. So, for example, one thing that you're taught at architecture school is to be the best, is to be the genius, is to be the one-off solution provider. That's how you're valued within the architectural training. At no point in architecture school are we taught humility. Mm -hmm. That's the most important thing in doing this kind of work. I think there are schools that are doing it. I mean, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I think it's. I, I think it's important to be resistant oh, to an idea that there's a modernisation of output in schools. There are nearly 50 schools in the UK now, and um, I, I think the really interesting thing actually is that there's a there's an ascendancy of live projects, which I think are engaging in, a, in an absolutely proper and correct and appropriate way with community actions. I think there's actually a new emphasis on, if you like, the modesty of intention, as well as, if you like, a sort of classical model that you provide, you know, which is essentially a fountain pen, um, and, and, yeah, which isn't a particularly robust model for the 21st century, let's face it. So I think the, the initiative has to be for the schools. I think the only people schools of architecture listen to are students of architecture. They don't listen to the RIBA. And frankly, my view is, why should they? Actually, I mean, why should they? They're, they're, these are independent providers of high-quality education. People beat half to the door of UK schools of architecture. Um, and many, many practices operating globally are UK-based and UK-educated. So I think, I think the initiative has to be for the schools to take on a greater diversity of challenges and produce lots of different kinds of architects. I've, I've, I've always thought that the profession is a huge place with room for versatile problem solvers, with people I would define as architects. And those versatile problem solvers actually should be capable of, of, of problem solving a huge number of different scenarios. Yeah, I mean, the only influence that the RAB has is, of course, RAB status and being able to work with, like the RIB, whether you're RIB approved and mm -hmm. the ERB criteria and you know taking your REBA part three and REBA do actually have some sort of influence over the skills that architects are trained and the competencies that they but have then, to show. The term of interpretation is actually with the school. I mean, I've, I've been saying this for at least seven years <laughs> and uh, the, the challenge has to be the school being prepared to break with the mould of the lone genius. And I think there's a place for the lane genius, by the way, but I think equally there's a, there's, a, there's a case for group working, there's a case for shared authorship, multiple authorship, interdisciplinary working, as you, you two guys exemplify. Um, and actually, we just need to be shy of, of propagating and proliferating models which you know, are essentially found in the middle, middle of the 18th century. I'm completely sympathetic to your view, but I, 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 I'll tell you the, one, the, the most corrosive possible thing the RIBA could do is go back to the days of 20 years ago when there was a core syllabus. That's impressive. It's just there are schools who, um, coming from one, 
that really struggle because the reason they don't, they can't allow their students to follow the various different outputs that they would like to produce because they have to fulfill the reason. Who told me that? Your teachers told me that. You know that's complete fabrication. So 
um, the, the understanding of um, risk at national government level and the community level is completely different. And the possibility of having a conversation about that in Japan is, is very, very, very difficult in their political process. The same, and Christchurch only opened the downtown Christchurch this year. Yeah. Aquila still shut off, nothing's happening. So, you know, there's a lot of examples where you have a strong state, they're risk averse, nothing happens. You know, Japan cleared up and they've got, you know, colour coded, sorted piles of waste. Absolutely amazing. <coughs> nothing's rebuilt. So, and so there's, there are yeah. lots of. You wouldn't rebuild the shanties now, would you? But, uh, you would if you lived there. there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, if you would if you're waiting for the government you to decide. You wouldn't purposely plan for it in a ravine. Yeah. Point. So, yeah. But, but then, like, why would you ever live in a ravine? Um, and did, did the reasons for you living in a ravine change after a disaster? Mm. That's that's the
I just want to say that um, I'm, uh, I will be careful about doing the comparison of things because um, okay. the very interesting thing about this is, is the focus on Haiti and the specific humanitarian scene Haiti. That's the that's that's interesting thing. thing. Exactly. That's yeah, the interesting exactly. thing, and then you can take s some things in that specific context. If you try to engage with other contexts, which are absolutely different, all of the ones you said is absolutely another world, completely yeah. different yeah. from the government, from the architects, from the humanitarians. I mean, it's not comparable at all. Yeah. It's, and yeah. I, I, I know because I'm coming from another country, South America, Chile, the, the approach of reconstruction is completely different. Yeah. The, we don't have almost any humanitarian aid in our in our disasters. Yeah. So exactly. we don't we, have we that. Know that's why it was, we thought it was interesting. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. you can you can take some things, but and, and you can't compare IEG with any other South American country, with any with no Japan, not not Katrina, because yeah. it's completely different. In Haiti, the poverty and the development conditions were were bad much before the earthquake. The earthquake just put it in the agenda of the world's agenda. That's that's it. But the problem was that much before. So yeah. you can't really try to reconstruct Haiti in the way it was before, if you want to do that, because basically it will be as poor and as undeveloped as it was before. So you have completely another thing to do. And that's why this is super interesting, because yeah. it's three little things from that. So we, 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 we went to see this documentary about Haiti made by Haitian, and, we, and um, we realized that we could never make that film. Because what he had was, he could speak to Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton and the President and the Prime Minister. I mean, he wasn't, he was elite Asian, of course, but he made a really, really super critical film about the humanitarian intervention. And after we saw that film, we were like, compare, like, what, what film can we make? Can we go to Japan and have a good relationship and speak to people? You know, so we were thinking about it from those points of view. And the film that we could make is go back through the chain of who made the decisions about that money. Um, those are the networks that we actually had mm. to give an account of why they decided to spend money in this way. And actually, that's probably more important because what we want to know is, we're not really saying, oh, it's a bad decision or a good decision. What we want to know is how did you make that decision? Mm. Like, who did you ask and, and, and why? And on what basis? And once you've made those decisions, the chance to actually ask someone in Haiti whether they wanted something different would be so curtailed that it's, it's so fundamental, it's like the root. On the other hand, international interventions are not that significant. Even in Haiti, loads and loads of money that people got on and did their own thing with remittances and other stuff. And that's, you know, if there's a big high profile international mobilization where people like us can get employed, then it's on the map. Plenty of disasters happen with no resources, um, and it's a completely different situation. So what we're talking about is massive disasters, which will happen again, they happen in the tsunami, loads more money than could be spent in the relief or humanitarian phase, so it drifted. Um, that's what we're holding to account here, is these interventionist, massive international mobilizations. That's the important thing about the scale and from our perspective as you know, Western professionals, is like, that's potentially, you know, when you show these students, they're like, oh, I love that job. You know, that's, that's, that goes into them. That's really important. That's potentially dangerous. But that's also what is going to keep happening. You know, everyone's trying to get into cities. Siemens is trying to sell their stuff into cities. Everyone's trying to get into cities. They, it's a business opportunity. So that's what that's who we need to speak to. Really. That's it. Okay. Uh, which 
leads quite nicely to my question is, and I think you spoke about a little bit, talk about the scalability, but I'm thinking a bit about the replicability. So we're talking about Haiti, and I'm thinking about places like Syria now, or, mm -hmm. or other places, and can we actually pick up this title and talk about that in a different space? How, what kind of learning can we take from what you've done into, you know, it's not Haiti, but then if it's something else that happens somewhere else, is that quite applicable in that space or not? I think so because we're talking so much about um, the organisational systems of humanitarian agencies. We're talking about the way that um, donors, donors are structured, um, donor organisations are structured, the way that they make decisions, the way that policy is made. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, all, of, all of this stuff is going to affect the way that a humanitarian agency attempts to act in whatever situation yeah. And I think it's brilliant because I'm actually literally thinking this, you know, is, is such a vital space that in terms of who you're speaking to, are they taking it in and are they then saying, you know, has this impacting them to the extent of them going into their space and into their decision making? Or is it just a, oh yeah, you know, that's really nice to hear, but when it all happens in, in Syria, we'll just do it exactly the same way. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Do you mean with all the search? Like uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, the feedback you're getting. So, you've spoken to DFID. So, we did the presentations we did. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we did a DFID, a new habitat, and some other powerful people on the same table. Right. One of the exercises in that workshop was to draw on a, on a trace. They said, we don't want to play God, we're not going to draw. They are the most powerful people in the room. Like, how can you draft text and not draft space. Like you draft tech, you draft a policy that's gonna shape loads of stuff and you don't hesitate to write that. But you know, thinking of space, so really so there's an example. Yeah. Okay, let me show I showed it at a conference which was predominantly anthropologists. Their reaction was uh, it's so specific, it's about context, you didn't you didn't, you know, it's it's about you know, all this um, it, and we're really anti kind of capitalism and technological fixes and um, like that. So the discourse of the conference was, we are anthropologists, we're going to give you a whole series of specific case studies, which is what we do in the humanitarian sector, specific case studies. Um, we're not going to generalise, we're not going to synthesise about that, because we can't. Yeah. And it's all about the, those people, not us. Um, and then you show them a film like that about them, and it's like, <clears throat> it's a crisis. So, and it was really, it's really difficult and weird. Yeah. And so we, we think there's a way in, but actually what we're finding is people don't get it. They actually don't get it. Like, we didn't get it. Like, I didn't get any, yeah. I didn't get it. I mean, I thought I had a sort of plural perspective, but actually what we're talking about the films um, until this direct conference, um, we, I mean, we came back and we realised like we wanted to speak to all of these guys in the local government and the national government in Haiti, and we wanted to speak to our counterpart our, like in Haiti, like the, the university that architects the evidence, and, and we didn't manage it for well, a number of reasons which we already talked about. Um, what we didn't see was um, the way that the films present the humanitarian guys as a source of power. Um, but, and we were just like sort of deep in the project actually. It wasn't until we went to the IREC conference, or Kate went to the IREC conference rather, and had this um, very strong negative reaction that we realised that this was also a, 
something that these films were sick and just like it was painful for people to watch and so and similarly like when we showed them at Diffid um, their discussion about what urban means is nascent I can say that um, but the, if, any, if anyone in the, so this is what happens if anyone in the room has been to Haiti they, they speak back to this in a, in a violent authoritative way and that's if you've been to Haiti if you're from a humanitarian organization you have a similar reaction right so and if Alison goes to the shelter meeting and says, oh, what you're talking about in urban intervention sounds a bit like slum upgrading. They're like, no, no, no. <laughs> what would you know? like that. You, this is us. Yeah. You don't understand. You've never been, you don't understand. And it's a massive wall, actually. And we're on the, you know, I'm sort of on the inside of that as well. And I'm like, yeah, back off with your, like, bling shelter product that we can place on the ground. We know that's not going to work. Um, back off with... Um, contracting some Washington-based consultancy to do a master plan of downtown Port Prince. But then actually, why? Because I, maybe, maybe they know much better how to do that than either the municipal government or my organisation here that's been in the since 1964 shooting my head. Like, <laughs> you know, not in urban areas. So I think it is really much harder to have this conversation than we thought it would be. And that's because it's embedded in people's education. It's embedded in their... Um, personalities before they did their education too, probably. It's embedded in their organisational culture and it's embedded in all the systems around them that motivate them to do something. So what can change for next time? Um, so I'm trying to develop a proposal to look at why we can't repair things. Because repair agencies think is really risky, as I just explained. The only way you can tackle that is by building a little bit more knowledge about what it actually means and what the risks are. Um, running people through in a safe time their decision processes and how they call on evidence, how they understand their own biases and prejudices and fears. And you've got to run them through that experience of the decision making. You can't say, here's a rule for how you make a decision. You need to experience what that's like. And then the third bit is how you change practice. And changing practice is not like, here's a guideline. Because if your incentives are different, that guideline's going to make a difference. So the practices are not just guidelines. They are your job contracts. They are your, you know, your incentives. They are um, the contracts you make with donors. You know, these are contract documents. They are legal documents that protect both parties. That's that's quite a hard conversation for program people in NGOs to understand. Procurement people and finance people, for sure. But there are frameworks beyond just we're we're good and we're trying and we're learning, and they're there already around us, and we're not sort of saying. How's that changing my what I can do? These bloody donors, it's because they're what they're giving money to. It's all the donors, and the donors and different are like the bloody politicians. And it's like, well, someone elected them who wanted to see a pregnant woman outside a house looking happy. And so what are you doing about changing that? Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> I'm gonna take one more question, then thank you very much to Alison and Kate will answer questions informally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm gonna <laughs> Mine's more of a comment, so if people have proper questions, then okay. maybe go well, for That's it. very gracious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you talked about the emerging diagram and the position of the urban design in the organization, who responds to who and who should account to who. Uh, when you talk about the different organizations, if you want to invert the diagram to put group of urban designers that can plan and help the different organizations, 
if you call the organizations as a power, power companies, let's say like this, how can you make them actually respond to the devices that you're making? Because if you consider them as a power, that they consider themselves as a power acting in the field, acting in the place, because they know what they're doing within the cap that they're doing, but they are not understanding the full range and the full view of the planning and the endurance that they, their activities is going to impact in the future of the society. Uh, how can you enforce your view? Enforce is a bad word. How can you? nudge their view into your way of thinking. How yeah. can, because they are a power within themselves. You mean like the urban designers going their master plan, how do they sort of supervise that plan and make yeah, sure that the guys do the shelter, like actually do it? Yeah, because uh, when you speak about Haiti as an example, it's a low-developed country. When the disaster happened, the uh, state were, were, was unable to take care of most of the policies because they themselves was in, in this despair. So if you don't have a ruling department ministry to back you up as an organizer, as an advisor to the different companies, how can you set yourself up as a planner, designer to help these organizations? Yeah, um yeah, I mean, it, it's a really, that's a difficult question about sort of legitimacy, of, about, okay, the, the government's not there, the government are the guys who say we're allowed to do things, we can see that things need to be done, but the government's not giving us permission. What do we do, because we've we come to a stalemate? Um, I mean, there were actually, like, a few solutions that were suggested in some of the films. Um, the Haitian government wasn't completely um, destroyed, there was some, still some very competent and capable people there. Um, people suggested seconding um, architects and urbanists and planners from, from other countries to go and support the Haitian ministries. And they would, I mean, you know, be the, sort of, the Haitian government is always going to be the source of legitimacy, democratically elected by the people. That's, those are the people who have to say, like, you can build houses, no, that's going to be for us, but then it's a factory here, this is the road, that's the priority, before it gets done first, whatever it is, that's that's where the legitimacy needs to come from, that's where the decisions and the direction needs to come from. But yeah, the, the details of exactly how and but it, it, it is a really important question if you're used to being an urbanist in, say, the UK, because you don't actually have to ask that, do you? Because if, you're, if you have a client, you don't, you don't need to worry that your client might be doing something against the constitution or illegal or inappropriate, because there's other frameworks around that client. Um, whereas if you're an urbanist and your client is something other than the government or something other than an organisation with the government's blessing, it's a good question. And we think that's a potential problem for inviting in openness to the to a humanitarian situation where humanitarian organisations probably know the pitfalls of religion. You know, not in, even governments that are functioning are not always nice. And humanitarian organisations know that very well. So yeah, good question. It's not easy, but maybe we should as professionals ask that. Yeah. Uh, sorry. <laughs> 
But do you think that, for example, integrating architects that know about and understand about the urban design and planning within the organizations themselves as advisors to the organization specifically, but they belong to each organization, could be a solution to it, or it will be too fragmented for the consensus when applying on field? I think it depends where you put them and what their power is and what their motivation is. If you say, we've got this organization, we've got a program team, in the program team we have water, we have sanitation, we have health, we have shelter, um, and then in shelter uh, we've got some team leaders and some managers who have some managerial responsibility, and then we've got an advisor who does urban. Yeah. Is that going to be effective? If you, that's, that's the argument about the organic ground. Um, advice is, technical advice is good, but if you are totally unaccountable because it's advice, mm. and you have no like, line management, in your organisation. Yeah, for an engineer, you'd never do that because there's a hierarchy to protect you professionally and to sort of get to, which is if you know what you're doing, you're in charge. Mm. You don't say, I'm in charge of all these engineers, uh, but I know nothing about it. <laughs> um, that bridge looks right. Doesn't happen like that. And I'm not suggesting we have an engineering hierarchy in, in geos, but what I'm saying is where you put those people in is really important because if you put those people into donors and donors say, I tell you what, throw away the request for proposal for water, request for proposal for shelter, let's integrate it, which they did after some time in Haiti, and let's put everything together, and let's have some people who understand what that might mean in the city. That's, that's powerful change. So, yeah. I, I, I think it highlights the point you made about government and governments as well. I, I think some of the questions that came from the floor about the particularities of, say, Christchurch, where there's actually sustained righteous anger mm -hmm. for the fact that a very, very well-meaning, but ultimately incredibly inflexible government meant for the structure, meant for the whole vertebrate reconstruction program was stalled. Or the fact that we know damn well that the Chambers made landfall in the state of Florida, where George Bush Jr. Uh, started as governor, it would be perfect. And, uh, the fact that we landed on the coast of Louisiana results in a very, very different uh, scenario, which is still ongoing. It, it's, it's an extremely complex situation. So I think I, I think proposing this set of philosophical tools to approach disaster is, is an extraordinary first move. But I think you'd be the first to admit that it's something which is particular to context as well. And understanding the breadth and depth of that context is something which I think design professionals have unique skills to be able to diagnose. Um, I'm aware we've been sharing air in uh, a limited amount of air in the room for a couple of hours. Uh, so I'm going to draw this formally to a close by thanking Alison and Patrick for a really provocative